man, so Taryn gets an A-plus for announcements. Every time she does them, she rocks it, but then she gets extra credit because she had a Star Wars nerd reference to Admiral Akbar. Woo! I love it. That's fantastic. I love that. It's great. All right, so right as we're getting underway, right moving into the very first thing, I'm going to do a little bit of a pop quiz. You just can think about this in your head, kind of answer it to yourself a little bit. But when we think about the idea of corporate worship, and if you're maybe new to the Christian gig, Corporate worship is when God's people come together in a concentrated way, like here, uh, and we corporately worship. Now, when you think of corporate worship, I want you to think about what are the elements that happen within a setting of corporate worship? What are the things that maybe happen on a Sunday morning or the things that God's people, when they come together, they should do that are reminiscent of that experience of worship? Just kind of think about it for a second. I could probably guess what some of them are. You're going to think, well, when we come together, we pray, and we sing, and we take communion, and uh, we, we listen to a message. And then, really importantly in the whole thing, we have donuts, because donuts are just a part of corporate worship, right? So there's these kind of benchmark things you think of. I'm curious, though, in your list, did anybody think when this happens in this corporate setting that we also engage in social justice, debt forgiveness, the eradication of poverty, eating ribs, and drinking beer. Mmm. Right now you're like, sounds like the DNC convention more than church. Listen, you're going to get this in a minute, all right? Because what I love about the wonderful, wacky world of Moses is he takes us to places that we wouldn't expect. And that's very much true today. So as we are doing this entire series, here in week three, we are going into the worship of Israel. As we're looking at this book, Deuteronomy. And, and, and he's kind of moving us into this direction to unpack where he's been. So we've kind of learned about the structure of Deuteronomy. We said, really, there's an introduction, there's three speeches, and then a conclusion. In the first speech, which was really kind of we blew through it in our first week, we, we just noticed the fact that he was talking about where they had come from. But as he goes into the second speech that we're, we're spending some time on, a number of weeks in fact, he's going to deal with where they are at. And in that framework, what he talked about is, listen, God gave us these ten creeds or codes that we are to live by. That was chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he says, he's given us a pledge that we hold to. And that was this idea of, listen, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then, man, live it with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You do it daily, hourly, at night, in the morning, everywhere you go, in your home, in your community, you name it. God is first and foremost. So that's kind of that worship element at its core. But now... He's going to move into a section that really builds out what worship for Israel looks like. And what worship looks like for them, or what the priorities were for them, is going to give us some instruction about things that should be in some way priorities for us. I don't think it's quite the same and parallel to Israel, but we're reading these things to learn what God has in store for us. And so we are going to be getting into some of the crazy things that Moses says that hopefully from this we can make some parallel adjustments and from that maybe we graft in certain things to our life. And so right now I'm going to go ahead and open this in a word of prayer and we're going to get just right underway because we've got a lot of ground to cover today as well. And so go ahead and join me. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that as we go through these sometimes very foreign, unfamiliar, ancient texts, they're going to have ideas or connections that we just don't know what to do with. That if we work really hard, we can get below the surface and, and maybe see principles that are there for us. 
And we can also see how from the beginning you've been playing out a story that's designed to touch the world, that's designed to bless all the families of the earth, and that we are a part of that legacy, that we play out in that responsibility. So I ask that you give us the wisdom, the strength, the tenacity, the focus, the clarity, the almost like the rebellion in our heart to live truly righteous for you in ways that you define those things. May we long for you, look to you, and strive for you in all that we do. It's in your good and kind name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here's the thing. As we're getting underway today, as we get rolling, I want to kind of set a couple of things in place. uh, Because where we're at in this section of Deuteronomy, uh, it's a lot of instruction. Like from chapter 12 to chapter 26, that's where the bulk of this idea of law comes from. But I want to stop and talk about that for a second because I think there's a little bit of assumption about the word law. In fact, there's some Hebrew scholars, and I tend to agree with them, that would contend that there is no Hebrew word for law. That word Torah or Torah really means instruction, giving this, these bites of insight and, and kind of principles for life so that you couple these together and generate wisdom from that. And that's different than just law. And so I would advocate that we probably shouldn't use the word law as much in this section of the Bible, but rather we should use instruction. And to give you a sense of what I mean by this, I want you to realize in your own world, the way you interact with law is very different than the way you interact with Bible. Like how many of you go, I do my devotionals at a tax law. How many of you say, my soul is filled when I look at real estate law? Oh, I love it when I'm focused on like kind of cross, like continental transit laws between Mexico and the United States and Canada. You know, we don't do that. We don't try to get our souls filled up by that. Psalm 119 doesn't read like that. I've hidden your interstate transit laws in my heart that I might not sin against you, King Jay. Like it doesn't work that way, right? So laws to us are very simple. They're meant to just curb bad and that's fine but see that's not the heart of god when he gives this stuff to moses see the heart of god is that they would interact with it that they would memorize it that they would saturate their minds with it and if you look at rabbinical kind of scholarship on this they understand what the heart behind it is it's so that people kind of work in that matrix of the instruction so much that over the course of time, it's just grafted into them. And then when they have circumstances in life, they can apply wisdom based on the instruction to deal with the circumstance they're in. So this is more than just laws, right? They're deep instructions designed to give guidance and wisdom and intelligence, not simply conforming to dogma or conforming to some kind of set of doctrinal creeds, and that's it. There's more. And so that's the first thing, because in week five, I'm going to unpack a lot of why that's important when you get to the life of Jesus and his ministry. But for day-to-day, I just want you to get that we're kind of not treating this like normal laws. This is something deeper for our hearts to wrestle with, right? To be received and pondered and applied in the spirit of love and devotion. The second thing about this series of instructions when it comes to worship, and, and this one I think is really important for us as modern-day followers of God, um, Worship in the way Moses is going to put this together, it spans all elements of life. It touches every sphere. So what we tend to do is kind of segregate, and we go, there's like the secular world, and then there's the sacred world. And the sacred world is where we do worship, and the secular world is where we do stuff. 
And, and Moses would look at that and scratch his head because he's like, no, 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 you don't get it. The whole idea of worship is immersive. The idea of worship is we're taking the stuff of God, the heart of God, and we're bringing it to bear on the world of God. Jesus is the master of unpacking that more. When he's like, the plan isn't just to huddle up as kind of communities of faith and block ourselves out from the world. He's like, no, the reason you come together as community of faith, communities of faith is so you can go out into the world and you make a difference in the world in my name. Therefore, everything is truly sacred in that realm. And what we are trying to do then as followers of Jesus is own the plan that was originally inaugurated way back in Genesis and to walk the path of that plan to bring the kingdom of Jesus to bear on all the different facets and little creases of this world that we tend to live in and work in and play in and everything else. I mean, that's the heart. Worship is everything that we do, not just this little sliver of time on Sunday. And so that's what Moses is going to be driving for the people of Israel. And that's valuable because, again, I want to remember that the whole function of Israel was to be a, a nation that was different to reach the other nations to be a people that were so committed to God that created a community so beautiful in the name of God that everybody else wanted to be a part of what that was. Now, they didn't execute this. They failed terribly at this, but that's the plan. And that's what we still get to try to do today. We try to buy into that agenda for blessing the world. And so having, having kind of gone through the anchoring points, if you've got the Ten Commandments, you've got our our kind of central theme our pledge he says let's talk now about your worship as a nation he's going to basically be unpacking the first four commandments of the ten commandments and at the center of all of this is going to be this need for religious exclusivity or the exclusivity of the one true god and so to understand how the chapters we're looking at today unfolds chapter 12 to chapter 16 i've created a little map here so let's go ahead and show the first one. It's going to be chapter 12, the first four verses, and then chapter 12, the, the last tail end of it. Chapter 12 is like bookended by these two ideas of don't follow the Canaanite gods. Don't bow to false gods. That's really, really critical. But then in the middle of that is going to be this idea of pursue the presence of God, the one true God of Israel. So all of this has structure. It's hard sometimes when we read these books, we don't always see that there's a literary structure, but that's exactly what Moses does. So he says, don't this, do this, don't do that. That's a good reminder. Then he goes into chapter 13, and he's going to double down on the things not to do. But that time, it's going to be the danger of Hebrew proponents of false gods. The others was going to be the Canaanites that might want to draw you in, but now it's going to be the Hebrews that might want to suck you into that stuff. And then coming out of that, he's going to get into all the things that they should pursue to have religious practice as the people of God serving the one true God. And so, we got the anchors in place, we got a sense of structure, we know what the agenda is for the day. And so with this, let's just start with the very first thing in your notes. If you're taking notes with us this morning, it's number one. He tells the people as they're getting ready to go into their ancestral home, this new Eden, to purge the land of false gods. You gotta just purge it. And God's gonna be going ahead of them to do the purging as well. So it starts in verse one. It says, these are the decrees and the regula regulations that you must carefully obey when you live in the land that the Lord your God of your ancestors is giving you. And by the way, he says that a lot. God's giving you the land. You want to remember that because they'll start to think, we've earned this land. We've worked this land. We've made this land what it is. That is always the temptation to take the credit. And so he always reminds them, whoa, I'm giving it to you. 
He says, you must obey them as long as you live. When you drive out the nations that live there, you must destroy all the places where, the, where they worship their gods, the high things on the mountains, on the hills, under the green trees. Break down the altars and smash the sacred pillars. Burn everything that represents these false gods. Completely erase the names of their gods. He says, do not worship the Lord your God in the way these pagan peoples do. And then he goes all the way to the end of the section, and he bookends the other side. When the Lord your God goes ahead of you and destroys the nations and drives them out that live in the land, do not fall into the trap of following their customs or worshiping their gods. Do not inquire about their gods, saying, how do these nations worship their gods? Maybe we could follow their example. Maybe there's a good idea. Maybe there's some cool stuff. Maybe we should check it out. Like, that's going to be the temptation. He says, but you must not worship the Lord your God in the way that the other nations worship their gods. For they perform for their gods things that are detestable as far as acts in the sight of the Lord. And so this deals with the first two commandments. No other gods, no other images of other gods or of the one true God, right? He's just kind of tacking that down. But again, the problem here is going to be for the outsider influence. So as the nation of Israel goes into the ancestral land, if they don't have everybody out of the scene, there is this potential that some will be there and some will be these little instruments of kind of temptation, of challenge, of saying, hey, look at the way we do it with our gods. It's better than the way your gods do it. And so he's like, you're going to have to eradicate it all. And, and, and it's interesting here in this kind of extraction, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of work. Because what's unique about these pagan populations is that they had idols and gods and kind of symbolism for all sorts of things. Even the way it breaks down. He talks about those things on the mountains. Those were all dedicated to kind of like the sun gods and the water gods because everything was about agriculture. Then the ones on the hills, that was about the grazing gods. Then you have the ones in the trees, that's about the fruit and crop gods. They're everywhere. Every home has multiple idols. Every town has multiple gods and multiple idols. So it could populate into the thousands of trinkets and poles and things that the people have to get rid of. And here's the other thing we may not fully realize about all those other systems and all those other gods. They were way easier than Yahweh. Like, they didn't have 613 laws. They didn't have all of this ceremonial stuff that was repeated in all these cycles throughout the year. It was pretty much just cut and try. Like, you give me this, and I'll give you that, and it's easy. There wasn't a lot of moral code. There wasn't a lot of financial overhead behind it. There wasn't a lot of even, like, ceremonial stuff. There was occasional things, but not a lot. But, but now Yahweh's got this whole long list of things. So with that, it could be really, really tempting for an Israelite to be like, man, I gotta do all this stuff for Yahweh, or I can do the, just do this one thing for Baal. That's way simpler. Maybe I'll go that route. See, God knows that's gonna be the temptation, so he's warning them. But the temptation isn't just from the outsider rubbing shoulders with your pagan neighbor that might get you. He goes into chapter 13, and he says, you know what? There are people among you. The insiders can be just as dangerous in different ways. He says, in fact, it can happen on three fronts. He says, if the prophets or the visionaries say this to you, or family or friends say this to you, or neighbors or citizens say this to you, so he's covering all the bases, the spiritual, the familial, and the social. He says, if they say to you, come, let us worship other gods, gods you have not yet known, don't listen to them. Because you're going to want to, right? 
Because who are the people we're most apt to listen to? The people we tend to trust. Uh, the people we tend to love and we think they love us. The people in our community that we go, you get the fabric of who we are and what we do. And sometimes those very people can dole out very bad advice. Right? And, and he knows this. So he's like, man, just don't let that happen. When that happens, the Lord your God is testing you to see if you truly love him with all your heart and your soul. He says, serve only the Lord your God and fear him alone. Obey his commands and listen to his voice and cling to him. He just reinforces what you want to do because it's always going to be really tempting to take the easy route, the route where you can keep the majority of your wealth, the majority of your property, the majority of your way of life, whatever it is. And he's like, when that happens, when you're tempted, just do the next right thing. When you're tempted, just say, you know, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to love the Lord my God with all of my being. I'm going to go all in on him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to fear him, obey him, listen to him, and cling to him. All of that is in there. You go, great. How do you do that? Well, that's the next thing. Pursue the presence of the true God. You want to stay away from the false God. You want to press in toward the true God. He says, don't worship the Lord your God in the way these pagan peoples do. Rather, you must seek the Lord your God at the place of worship that he himself will choose from among the tribes, the place his name will be honored. He says, there we will bring a burnt offering, right? Your sacrifices, your tithes, your sacred offerings, your offerings to fulfill a vow, your voluntary offerings, and your offerings to firstborn animals of all your herds and flocks. He says, there you and your families will feast in the presence of the Lord your God, and you will rejoice in all that you have accomplished because the Lord your God has blessed you. Your pattern of worship is going to change. Today, all of you do as you please because you have not yet arrived in the place of rest, the land your God, your, land your God is giving you as a special possession. But you will soon cross the Jordan River and live in the land the Lord your God has given to you. When he gives you rest from all your enemies and you're living safely in the land, you must bring everything I commanded you, again, all that different stuff, to the designated place of worship, the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, and you must celebrate there in the presence of the Lord your God with your sons and your daughters and all your servants, and remember to include the Levites who live in your towns. Now, right now, after I've read that big, long thing, I'm sure your eyes are just starting to roll back into your head. Little drools coming outside of your mouth like, that was a long section, Matt. I don't even know what to do with that section. That section is anchoring all four of the first four commandments, right? He's giving them the practice from the principle in this, right? But here, let's pick out the bits a little bit because it's easy to miss the bits, all right? So we're gonna pick out some of the bits. This is about contrast. So remember what he said about the pagans? He says, they have places everywhere. Hills, mountains, groves, houses, towns, cities, they are scattered everywhere. So you know what we're doing? One place. They have places. You're going to have a place. And this is important because up to this point, he says, you've all been doing what pleases you, but today it changes. And now it's going to be about what pleases me. And so what you then see he does is he says, I will choose the place. So the people don't choose it. God's going to choose the place. It's going to be the place where his presence dwells. And it says it is the place where his name will abide and be honored. So again, there we're getting into the third commandment, right? Don't use the Lord's name in vain. He's like, man, I'm going to make a special location. I'm going to set my name in that location. My presence is going to be in that location. And you all travel to that location. Now, as he writes his name, this is a symbol of ownership and conquest and sanctuary. It's like, this is God's kingdom, 
right? He is meant to be the king of the region, and then all the people are going to come to him. And so on these different occasions, they gather together in this one centralized place, and then they bring offerings. And I don't know if you noticed, you probably weren't counting, but there's seven. God loves sevens. So you have burnt offering, sacrifices, tithes, heavy offerings, vow offerings, free will offerings, and firstborn offerings. And then they come to this location, and then they offer the offerings. And as they do so, they do what pleases God. And as they do what pleases God, they are to rejoice in the presence of God and all that they do. Now, in that, there is a ton of stuff that I wish we had time to just dig through and everything else, especially for me as a Hebrew nerd. It would be fun to do all of that. But here's the thing I want to get is like the central lesson there. What God sets up there that is so unique for anything that anybody had ever done is the fact that all worship became centralized. All of it came to one resting place. And, and as it does it, I think it's genius. Because what it does is it forges unity among the people, community among the people. They're all on the same page. They're learning the same stuff. They're experiencing the same rhythms. They're joining in the same faith community. That's a profound thing. It creates belonging, which if you look at all religious practice, its most powerful trait is the sense of we're all in it together. We belong together as one. We rely on one another. We kind of put our weight against one another to carry through life. And that's exactly what he's going to forge with the Hebrews. And if I port that into our modern day, I go, that's the function of church, man. Like, church is that thing where when we all come together, there's this shared sense of, man, we're breathing the same air, we're singing the same songs, we're listening to the same themes, we're being challenged in the same ways. When we take communion, it's the reminder that we are all one in Christ as Christ is one with God, and that is our unifying bonding agent. And while church is far bigger than what we do in here, there's something about when we do it together, whether it's online or in this room or whatever, it just kind of puts us all in the same kind of space or the same page. The sense of unified vision. That's a powerful thing. And so when that all coalesces together and God's people are joining together in God's name to learn of God's instructions, to understand God's heart, what that creates is an uncommon community. Uncommon. Or the preferred word is holy. And that's exactly why God has them come to this singular, special, sacred space to recharge their batteries, to be challenged, to remember their God, to be filled up by his presence, and to be an uncommon and holy people. And that's exactly where Moses goes next with number three, the distinctiveness of purity. He says here in chapter 14, verse 1, and this is where it gets a little weird. Since you are the people of the Lord your God, never cut yourselves or shave the hair above your forehead in mourning for the dead. I didn't cut it. It just happened according to nature. Verse 2, though, he says, You have been set apart as holy to the Lord your God, and he has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. You must not eat any detestable animals that are not ceremonially clean or unclean. Gets into that whole list. Clean versus unclean, land, air, sea, insects. He talks about the difference between the two categories. And then in verse 21, he says, And you must not cook a young goat in its own mother's milk. You're like, what the heck do I do with any of that? What is the story there? All right, here's the deal. These are ancient cultures around other ancient cultures doing ancient culture stuff. And some of it's going to look weird. As much as I am certain 3,000 years from now, there's going to be some culture looking back and they're like, yeah, it was called America, right? And they're going to be like, yeah, they had this show called Botched. 
so weird. Like people would like squirt stuff in their faces. It was like Botox. It was actually, they called it Botoxin and they put toxin in their face. And then they like had butt lifts and then they had crazy game shows and they had TikTok and that was madness. And they're gonna look at us and be like, they were nuts, right? Well, that's why we look at them. They go, well, they seem like they were nuts back then too. But there are ideas in this where we can isolate out kind of the, the principle that underlies it. And then from that, we go, oh, okay, this makes a little bit of sense. So for a second, let's isolate out kind of verse one, yes, and verse 21, because those seem a little bit strange to us, right? So let's break this down a little bit. Um, he, he says in, in this first part about verse 21, he says like, okay, don't, don't cut yourselves when somebody dies, right? That was a cultic practice and, and shaving your, the, the head. And the idea here that I, I really believe Moses is trying to get at is he's saying, you know what? God's ways are different. And when somebody dies, don't do deathly things to your body when they die. To cut your body is like a deathly thing. It's like a decaying thing. You're adding the sense of death to death. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to loss. But don't load up dying things for dying things. The living's for the living, where there should be flourishing. Dying is for dying, where there is death. But don't start doing deathly things to living bodies, mourning death. You're starting to invert life and death. Don't invert life and death. It's the same with verse 21. What's milk for? It's for the nourishing of a young goat or a young lamb. So it's for life. Don't take the, the vehicle of life and then bring death to a little one like that. That makes no sense. Milk is for life. Milk is not for death. Don't invert life and death. And that's always going to be the temptation. That's always going to be the challenge. That sometimes we like death things more than we like life things. And God's like, no, no, no. I'm doing this whole thing that started back in Genesis 12 to bring flourishing and blessing to the nations. So keep life things as life things and death things as death things and don't invert them, don't flip them, don't mix them. Because I am the God of the living and I'm undoing the damage of death that started in Eden. The other part is verses two through three. We can kind of isolate that for a minute, right? He talks about this idea of purity, and he's like, hey, I've called you to be holy, I've called you to be different, and so I want you to know the difference between clean and unclean animals. Now, it's a weird list, because it's like, I can eat lamb, but I can't eat camel. Never wanted to eat camel, that's not hard, right? Like, the list looks a little weird. And, and some people kind of speculate about the list. It's like, was this because of hygiene purposes? Uh, was this because pagans would do things with these animals and not these animals? Honestly, people have spent a very long time trying to understand why is the list the way it is, and the answer is nobody knows. Just nobody really knows. It's all speculation and guesses. Here's my assumption. It's just Matt's assumption. So Bible's there, Matt's over here. Make a clear distinction. I think the list is kind of arbitrary in some ways. Because it's not about which ones are good and which ones are bad. I think God is trying to immerse them in a learning experience. That they're supposed to learn about purity and impurity. And the best way to teach little kids is to put them in like real-time environments with real practical ideas that make it really, really clear. And all God has to do is say, that group we're going to call unclean. This group we're going to call clean. So you learn the difference between clean and unclean more in your heart and more in your soul. And so he just immerses them in that space. See, the proof, though, that they're supposed to graduate out of that, that those are like training wheels to something deeper, is when you fast forward to the ministry of Jesus. And he's always duking it out with the religious leadership. And what are they always freaking out about? 
Why are you touching unclean things? Why are you eating unclean food? Why are your guys not washing their hands before they eat? This is really bad. This is a violation of Moses. And he's like, you guys don't get it. It's not what you put down your gullet that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart. Moses started you with training wheels so you'd kick those mothers off and learn real purity from heart, not keep focusing on food. But this is the start of that lesson. And they're supposed to understand that when it comes to life, we should want purity. When it comes to life, we should love life. When it comes to death, we acknowledge death. When it comes to impurity, we acknowledge impurity. But God wants a clear separation because that is to make us a holy people. It's from there he takes them into the next step of worship, which is an interesting one. Because the first ones make sense. True God, not false gods. Pursue purity, don't pursue impurity. Love life, don't celebrate death in life things. That's not the right thing. Understand life and death is different. But then he immediately goes into number four. The practice of tithing. Ooh. Goes right to money. The other God that is probably the one that contends against God more than anything else. So this is what he says to the nation. He says, you must set aside a tithe of your crops, one-tenth of all of the crops you harvest each year, and bring the tithe to the designated place of worship. Again, the one centralized place. To the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, and eat there in his presence. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, firstborn males of your flocks and herds, Doing this will teach you always to fear the Lord your God. So this is just one of the ways that Israelites give. So this is the 10% agricultural tax. Remember we saw there were seven different offerings? This is just one chunk of that. So when you go, oh, all they gave was 10%. Now we've kind of done math. Some of the scholars, they might have been giving as much as 40 to 50% of all they had annually to religious practice. It was a pretty steep slope. Now, it's interesting here because when you give it, and this is the thing I really love about this, you don't just come and give your tithe and it goes to the Levites and priests and it takes care of the system and that's it. Notice that it says you bring your tithe and you participate in the eating of what you bring. So part of what you're bringing as your tithe is something you're going to enjoy. In a feast, as a festival, is this kind of fun time. What's cool about that is, listen, people, when we do like casseroles and carols and the chili cook-off, that's your tithe, man. Potlucks are tithes. It's not just your money, but it's this too. I think that's pretty rad. But then it gets better. Verse 24. It says, Now, when the Lord your God blesses you with a good harvest, the place of worship he chooses for his name to be honored, uh, you bring that to that place. At least that's what you're supposed to do. But you might realize that, you know what, you, you live too far away. And it's going to be a lot of extra effort to bring all that, that stuff to that location. So he says, in that kind of event... You may take everything and turn it into money, right? And then you take that money to the place the Lord your God has designated. And when you arrive, you may use the money to buy any kind of food you want. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Some versions say beer, all right? He says, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat it there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. That is hilarious to me. Honey, what did you do with the tithe? I bought some Pinot Grigio and IPA with some ribs so we can go to the place the Lord wants us to go and eat and rejoice. Rad. 
Like, I remember years ago, I got in trouble for saying Christians could drink, and I would take people to this passage, and I'd be like, but here, it's an act of worship, and you would think I said, and Satan is God. You know, like, I was in so much trouble. I'm like, but it says it right there. That's what they did for worship. I think this is just super funny, right? And what I think is so cool about this is even where he says, anything your appetite craves. Isn't that cool? Like, like God wants your being to be in it. He isn't like, uh, and get poi and stuff that tastes bad. It's like, no, whatever you crave, you bring that. You bring it as worship, and you enjoy it in the process. It just says that, that tithing wasn't just a task, right? It, it was this whole kind of occasion of community and festivity and enjoyment and fun and celebration. I think that's awesome, right? What we also see is incredibly philanthropic. Verse 28. He says, at the end of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. So this time it's not central, it's local. He says, give it to the Levites who will receive no allotment of land among you. Remember, the Levites are the only group that don't get property, so everybody else takes care of the Levites as they take care of the religious system. He says, so you give it to the Levites as well as to the foreigners living among you, the orphans and the widows in your towns, so they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all your work. See, this is where I think is even more interesting. So every year, you bring your 10% of the one part of it. Again, there's a bunch of other things you bring too, but you bring that 10% once a year to the central place. But then every third year, in that local environment, you're taking your tithe, and yeah, you care about the religious system, but you're caring about non-Israelites. You're caring about the immigrants of your community, the foreigners of your town, as well as the widows and well as the orphans. Everybody goes, widows and orphans, yes, but the foreigner? God wants you to care for the foreigner? He says, yeah, the foreigner too. In fact, it's interesting, when you track throughout the Hebrew scriptures, you will see often God's like, hey, if you don't take care of the foreigner, I won't take care of you. If you don't bless them, I won't bless you. If you don't help them, I will curse you. Like, God's pretty hardcore on some of these things. And it's coming out right here in the initial written code, right? The instruction given by Moses. In fact, it goes even further. It's number five in your notes. It's the centrality of forgiveness and generosity. It goes into chapter 15. It says there's the one year, there's the three years, but now every seven years. You must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. This is how it must be done. Everyone must cancel the loans they have made to their fellow Israelites. They must not demand payment for their neighbors or relatives, for the Lord's time of release has arrived. I mean, listen to this stuff. Honestly, you're like, God like, mandates all of these fiscal responsibilities, right? Probably, like I said, upwards of 40 to 50%. And then he's like, you need to use some of this money for foreigners and immigrants. Then you need to have mandatory debt forgiveness every seven years. Next thing you know, he's going to declare a war on poverty or something stupid. Well, that's what he does. Verse 4, he says, there should be no poor among you. Hmm. For the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land he is giving to you as a special possession. You will receive this blessing as you carefully obey all the commands the Lord your God is giving to you today. I think this is wild, because honestly, when I read through this, I go, this sounds like a Bernie Sanders rally, more than it sounds like a Mosaic Code. Like, help the foreigner, and debt forgiveness, and hey, there should be no poor people in the land. But this is what Moses is saying. And here's what I love about this. Um, 
God, through Moses, is doing something I would call world-building. He's trying to build a world within a world or a culture for the sake of other cultures. And at the core of this whole thing, if you really just boil it all down, we could get into how do you execute these things or whatever else, but here's what he's getting at. He's like, listen, people, the more you honor my heart of generosity, you ready? The more I will reward you with more. And the more you have more, you have more to be more generous. And the more you keep being generous with the more that I give you, it continues to cycle and cycle to eventually what you have is you have poverty no more. But it takes the willingness to give more than the want of keep, which is always the challenge of human nature. Always the challenge. In fact, it reminds me of this principle called Ubuntu. My wife told me about this. She wrote a paper on it a few years ago. It's this kind of African concept where it's like, uh, I have because we have, and we have because I have, and if you don't have, I want you to have, even if it means I give away what I have so that you can have, because the attitude is like, the rising tide lifts all ships. It's the heart of generosity. It's the heart of giving. And I think this is important for the nation of Israel because it goes back to Deuteronomy 8 where God says, listen, I know what's going to happen. When you're getting wealthy and you're comfortable and everything's good, you're going to think it's yours. You're going to think you generated it, you made it, you built it, you earned it, and you're going to forget that I'm the one that gave it all to you. And then in that, you'll probably hold it for yourself, hoard it for yourself, keep it for yourself, and you forget others around you. Like, that's always going to be the risk. God knows that's the risk for the nation. But he's saying, I've called you to be uncommon. It's like, commonness in the world is that very thing. Look out for myself first, and then others second. And he's like, but I'm trying to build a different thing. Upside down, down backwards, completely uncharacteristic of the way business is done. And so he's pitching to them radical generosity and radical forgiveness. And not just in policy, but also in disposition. He says in verse 7, he says, but if there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, so you're rolling in, you're going to find some Israelites that are broke by the time they walk into town. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Instead, be generous and lend to them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse some loan because you fear the cancellation debt is close at hand. He says, if you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. I think that's so interesting because the way the cycle would work, right, is that seven years, debt's forgiven. So then somebody comes to you in year six and three quarters, <laughs> says, I need a loan. And you're like, oh, but this is a couple of weeks from forgiveness. I don't want to give you a loan. Then I'm going to lose all my money. God's like, right, right. That's kind of the idea of generosity. And it's certainly the idea of, idea of believing that God really gives it to you. And if he calls you to give it because he's given it, he's probably going to give you more because you gave it. I have a friend of mine back in Spokane, a pastor I worked with. That was 100% his philosophy. 100%. Every time he'd have this influx of money, he'd be like, yeah, so I gave it away to like 17 church plants in India. Like, what? You're kidding. He goes, ah, he gave me more. So I gave it away more. And he goes, and now the problem is I, had, I suddenly had more money come. What are you gonna do with it? I'm gonna figure out a way to get rid of it. You know, I mean, this is just his heart. I'm not saying that's for everybody, but he took this and like, I, I wanna live that principle, Right? I want to work towards seeing poverty eradicated kind of attitude because that was the heart for Israel. Now, I know some of you, because you're good Sunday school kids, right now you're going, but remember what Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. Like you can never solve the problem, right? That's kind of the thing we look at it sometimes. Here's what's interesting about that. 
if you go back and look at the story, first of all, you see the occasion. And the occasion is a woman with pretty much nothing but this alabaster flask of perfume. She breaks it and she anoints Jesus. That's the event. And then from that, there's this pushback by someone in the room. It's like, Jesus, how dare we do that? We could have taken that and sold it and helped the poor. Now, in Matthew and Mark, we don't know who voices it. But in John, we find out who does. It's Judas. Judas is the one that complains that we wasted that perfume. We could have taken the money and helped the poor. But then John adds to it, and Judas was a thief who would take from the money box and wouldn't help the poor, but pocketed the money for himself. And when Jesus says, the poor you'll have with me always, he's actually quoting this section of Deuteronomy, verse 11, and his point isn't making an observation. He's making a condemnation of Judas. The problem, Judas, is that greed. It could have been for the poor, but you don't want it for the poor. You want it for yourself. And see, that will always be the temptation for all of us. It doesn't even matter if you don't have money or do have money. Greed does not care if we're poor or rich. Greed is just a me first. And God is wanting to break that slavery in the land and create a different kind of thing. And what I love about this is it's not just social policy. It's a part of their worship charter to care for the poor, to care for the disenfranchised, to care for the indebted, and to do all these things to alleviate their burdens. And what's he say? Don't have a hard heart, a tight fist, don't have a mean spirit, don't have loan denial, don't refuse to act, or you'll be guilty. I mean, it's heavy words. Thus he says, give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. I think that's part of the challenge. Nobody's quite always willing to take up God in that challenge. Like, you will bless me in everything I do if I do this thing? Like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do, right? There will always be some in the land who are poor. That's the quote Jesus makes out of his favorite book, Deuteronomy, right? He says, but this is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with Israelites in need. Because he's like, that's how we change it. It's not on the poor to stop being poor. It's on those who have to help those in need. And this goes even further. It goes into the space where a person has been so in debt that they've had to literally enslave themselves to another person to pay off their debts. Moses goes there. He says, if a fellow Hebrew sells himself or herself to be your servant and serves you for six years, in the seventh year, you must set that servant free. Whether they've paid off all of their debt or not. Whether that indebtedness started six years into the cycle and they've only served you for a year, whatever it is, you set them free. And when you release a male servant, do not send him away empty-handed. Give him a generous farewell gift from your flocks, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Share with him some of the bounty which the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember the Lord, remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you, and that is why I'm giving you this command. I, I think this is fascinating again, all right? Because the person could be like, wait a minute. So not only am I not going to be paid my debts, I've got to send them off with a bunch of stuff? Are you nuts, God? You know how expensive that is? And God says, right. And I gave it all to you. You're a manager, not an owner. Right? You, you, you just send stuff as I lead you. And you do that and I will bless you. It's a great system. You do this because you've been freed. Or as Jesus says, You've, received, you've freely received, so you freely give. See, this one challenges me. I'm not like some master at this by any stretch. If anything, I look at this and I go, you know, um, it, it's just the challenge of do I really believe God gives it to me or do I really believe that I've earned it and I need to kind of maintain it for me and what do I really believe? 
fact, what I love about this whole thing is that God has designed this to just repeatedly be in their face. Right? So a little thing here. Yearly, you got to do that. Every three years, you got to do that. Every seven years, you got to do that. Every 50 years, you got to do that. Just Repetition is the best way to learn. Now, here's what's sad. When you look at the history of Israel, they didn't do it. They didn't do it. And by the time you get to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's like, you know why the Assyrians punked the north and we're getting punked here in the south? Because we didn't do it. Right? Uh, Because we didn't do the very thing that God was calling us to do to be uncommon. We became common, and therefore we became judged, and now we're on the outs. Over 3,000 times in the Bible does God address the poor, the marginalized, and the outsider. They're not just sub-themes. They're like primary themes of worship, and it's probably why Jesus spoke so often about it, because Moses spilled, spilled so much ink in relationship to it. So, that's a major part of their worship. What are the other major parts? Really fast. These are lightning quick. Last three priorities. Number six is the priority of proper sacrifice. Proper sacrifice is God's like, you know what? When you bring your herds to me, I want the best. I want the best, which is also a sense of trusting God financially. I'm going to give you my most prized heifer here. The one I could get the most money for? God's like, right, because I gave it to you. You can give it back to me. And I'm going to give you a bunch more if you give me the one. Yes, it's costly to give the best. But it's saying, God, you're worth my best. After that, he tells them to have the celebration of festivals, which is the festival of unleavened bread or Passover, the festival of harvest, the festival of shelters. All had significance, all took time, all were costly. But all unified the nation, created fellowship, and established worship. And then there's a final thing, and it starts to cross over from theology to civility, or from worship to kind of the way societies work, but it's the primacy of justice. Like God's like, man, unbalanced scales, abomination, right? I want justice. Therefore, he says, appoint judges and officials for yourselves from each of your tribes and the towns the Lord your God has given to you. They must judge the people fairly. You must never twist justice or show partiality. Never accept a bribe, for bribes blind the eyes of the wise and corrupt the decisions of the godly. Let true justice prevail so that you may live and occupy in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. This is part and parcel to to purity and holiness. Not having bias, not shunning one group and elevating another group, but true justness for all. So with that, let's finish up. Where does Deuteronomy meet real life? First thing, worship is an expression of bringing all of God's flourishing priorities to the earth. So what are things that you or I are doing to make that a reality, right? It's not just secular, it's sacred too. It's both. Number two, one of the risks always before the people of God is not fully fully honoring the will of God. What might be an area or areas where I know God wants me to surrender to his best? Just you feel in your heart like God wants me to take this step or do this thing or remove this thing, whatever it is, what's that thing? And then number three, the centralization of worship was a paramount distinctive for Israel. Am I protecting the same characteristics in my own relationship with the church? Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, we covered a lot of ground. And I believe we covered ground that you cover a lot when I look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When I look at how the very first thing you say when you open up your ministry is that you have come for the poor, the blind, the imprisoned. That those aren't just spiritual categories, those are tangible categories. And that you have called us, commissioned us, blessed us to use us 
to be a blessing to others. I pray that you will give us that kind of heart, that kind of sensitivity, especially in a world that can get so polarized and see these things as political things. They're not political things. They're your things. They're your heart. May we have your heart above all else. May we care about your priorities above all else. You've empowered us to do these things. May we do these things for you in your name, for your glory, because you've been so good to us. Help us in your grace to be truly grace-filled, truly generous, truly good. And not because we're trying to earn anything, but because we love you. We thank you. We want to honor you because you've done so much for us. We praise you this day, and we give you our all in your good name.